Here's a pro tip. If you want to get on this podcast, be into punk rock, grunge, metal, and in the title of your memoir, maybe include the words mixtape. That'll fast track you from the CNF pod slush pile right to the main stage. And so we feature Boys in the Void, a mixtape to my brother by Jira Asim. Jira has art and writing in his DNA. His father, Jabari, has written like 4,600 books and poems. I highly recommend his poetry collection, Stop and Frisk. He even said, well, Jira even said that his family was kind of like the Salingers, uh, J.D. Salinger's glass family. Yeah, well, I, I'll be interested to see if my uh, if my family or my siblings find that to be a flattering comparison, but it's definitely an accurate one. Oh, hey. Now in our ninth year, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey, let's hit it. Boys in the Void. Boys in the Void. Published by Beacon Press. G. Rossim, man, this dude can write a sentence. He can turn a phrase. He wrote this book as a manifesto to his younger brother, Giasi. Here's a riff from the back cover of the book. Writing to his brother, G. Rossim reflects on building his own identity while navigating blackness, masculinity, and young adulthood all through wry social commentary and a music pop culture critique. And that critique is all about punk and about straight edge culture. And what does that even mean? What does it mean to be edge? The, the planks of the straight edge platform are, of course, no drinking, no drugs, uh, no promiscuous sex. You know, clear the deck, focus on your work, focus on you. It's all good stuff. Love this book. Man, I love this book. Be sure to be the first. Be sure to be the first? What the, what the hell? First, but first. God damn it. But first, be sure to keep the conversation going on social media at CNF Pod and consider being a member at the Patreon page. We've got a small little cohort of folks who will get an exclusive audio magazine beamed right to the special feed on Patreon. That will not be in the usual CNF pod feed. Issue 1, Isolation, will always be there, but subsequent issues are only for the Patreon community. If you want to experience the great work and support the great work of the writers and the work of putting it together, head over to patreon.com slash cnfpod. This whole jam will still be free in show notes to this in every episode at brendanomero.com. Go there. There, sign up for the monthly reading recommendation newsletter tips, writing prompts, book raffles, exclusive digital happy hour. Newsletter goes out on the first of the month. No spam. Can't beat it. Stay tuned for my part and shot. Pot and shot. But in the meantime, here's my conversation, which took place back in February with Jira Asim. Because, you know, your family is very artistic and there's a, a literary lineage in the Asim family. And so I, I, I have to think that it's, um, 
is probably a feather in the cap of your parents and also something that feels good for you to be kind of following in the footsteps of such uh, you know creative people absolutely uh you know it's it's one of those things that i i very vividly remember calling my mother when the book sold and telling her that um i recognize that through a certain lens even getting to this point uh kind of relative to our origins was a pretty improbable uh, occurrence and so the conversation we ended up having on that occasion was about my awareness um you know at this point i was in my early 30s and that uh my parents had kind of set up a series of dominoes a really long series Mm -hmm. of dominoes to make it possible for me to be in a position to even um extend that legacy that you reference and yeah it, it was like a really it was a really cool and gratifying thing to say to my mom like hey i appreciate your vision i appreciate your perseverance thank you for making this possible for me and i hope this feels like a a kind of payoff for you a return on investment for you and how have you come to see you know writing as maybe more than an art form uh, just in terms of the craft and the message and the and the power that can be you know wielded with a a great turn of phrase. Well, you know, I think about this a lot with my students. Um, I think it's actually really useful to sort of be someone who's already an inveterate reader and writer, but mm-hmm. who has to periodically make the point to to folks who are in an earlier stage on the journey, or, or make the case for why it's worth becoming one of those. And uh, I always come back to this Simborska poem where she talks about writing as a uh, as revenge of a mortal hand. Mm. And, you know, when I think about consciousness, when I think about being alive, there's like such a experience is such a a rich thing. Consciousness is such a rich thing. When I actually hold uh, boys in the void in my hands, I feel like I've achieved a sort of uh, revenge of a mortal hand. I feel like I've actually encapsulated what it means to live and think about living. And I imagine that would be a, a gratifying point to get to. And it, it's even, it's even better than I thought. Revenge of the mortal hand. Like what a, what a line. And I, I love that you're able to just, you know, pull that from your own hard drive and you know, what, when you came across that line for the first time, or maybe even upon rereading it, what was that like when that line just stuck out to you like a bolt of lightning? Well, I mean, one of the beautiful things about literature, and I think a lot of people relate to this. I don't want to say it like I'm the first person that was thought, but the, my experience of it was, oh, this is a, a preoccupation that I have, but I've never been able to crystallize it like this poet has. Yeah. Um, and when you, it does a few things when you, recognize that your experience um, is convergent with the experiences of people who were not in any uh, surface level way, anything like you, Uh, you, you really feel a part of something greater. You feel aware of the kind of like grand tradition of letters. And, you know, you could even say the grand tradition of human experience. Um, And that line really made me feel like, okay, this, this, um, ongoing impulse I have to sort of like bottle up uh, what it means to be alive and how it, how it feels to be a human being is something that lots of people have, right? That, that people have had since time immemorial. And this poet is very cogently capturing that and speaking to uh, the necessity of it. So 
it kind of made me feel like, wow, pursuing Revenge of Immortal Hand is worth it. And there will be there will be others down the line who will benefit from my pursuit of it the same way I'm benefiting from Simborska's uh, explanation of it. What's great about hearing you say, you know, bottle up a certain feeling and, you know, trying to encapsulate it in what, whatever that might be. It could be a poem or a book or an essay. And what's really neat about that, and it's very evocative in a sense of like, you know, sort of the um, the topical ethos of your book being a mixtape for your brother, that it's like there are albums on our shelves sometimes. Uh, I guess they're on Spotify now where you can pull down a record or something. And this record, it's like this is speaking to, you know, a certain a certain theme. There might be eight tracks and it might be 30 or 45 minutes long. And this thing speaks to this. And this is how I'm feeling. And I'm going to hit play and I'm going to sink into it and really lock in. And so I just love hearing you say that, that there are certain, uh, you know, books and ways of writing that can do something similar. Like if you want to sink into a different mood, a certain bathtub of, of, uh, of emotive resonance, you can pull that off your bookshelf and then kind of swim in that for a while. Yeah. Uh, that's a great connection you're drawing. I mean, that's, I, I think that's sort of the thing that can be lost when someone tells you about something that they love or something that they are, have had a lifelong engagement with, like I happen to have with punk and straight edge culture is, you know, it's one thing to say, Oh, you know, I heard minor threat when I was 14. I thought it was really cool. And, then I was, you know, starting my own bands and stage diving and making zines for the next 20 years. And in, in that kind of summary, you know, if you had that conversation over coffee, you might be like, oh, sounds great. Like, you know, cool story, bro. Uh, and this book allows me to sort of open that up and explain to my brother who's, who's witnessed a lot of my engagement with punk, but not necessarily known what my interior relationship to it is. And so instead of just saying, hey, here's a song, I hope this song um, conveys all the crazy associations I've had with it and all the memories I have associated with it, in the book, I get to actually break that down. I get to say, okay, yeah, this is a song by Anti-Flag and like you could listen to it on its own and I'm sure you'd get some cool things from it, but let me place it into context. Let me explain why it hit me um, in a particular way vis-a-vis the social location I inherited on earth and that you inherit too, to some degree. It's, it's really exciting to be able to, to find an avenue to share that component of it with my brother and obviously with readers worldwide. Why was it important for you to, you know, to write this book and to compile the mixtape, as it were, for your younger brother? There's a few different dimensions of that. I think a major one I would point out is I think there are particular affordances to uh, having a rapport with someone 14 years younger than you. And in his case, particular affordances to having a rapport with someone 14 years older. Uh, You know, something I think about a lot and sometimes we talk about in my family is like on my mom's side, each generation is separated by a gap only slightly bigger than the one between me and Jossie, meaning like my mom and my grandma are only 19 years apart. My grandma was only 19 years younger than her mother, right? So mm-hmm. in a way, the gap between me and my brother is like almost a almost a parental-sized gulf, but yeah. we can talk about things and transmit experiences to one another with an ease and with a 
a comfort that is obviously, you know, typically harder to come by with your parents. And so I think we would be living in a really different culture, right, if we had more comfortable intergenerational discourses that, you know, there's a lot of things about the world in 2001 when he came to Earth that uh, that shape his experience going forward, but that no one, it's likely no one has really narrated for him uh, in a personal and accessible way. Um, and by the same token, I think he has a vantage point that I, particularly as an educator, right, particularly as someone who spends a lot of time working with people his age, a vantage point that I can learn a lot from and that I can't really simulate on my own. So um, I think having my brother as sort of the audience for the mixtape, uh, there's a few different angles to it, as I mentioned, but that one, the age-related one, like, hey, instead of just saying, oh, you know, when I was your age or kids these days are so this or so that, <laughs> we get to actually have the kind of conversation you might have between peers, except we're, we actually have such different temporal uh, markers that uh, we can enlighten each other in ways that a more literal peer could not. Was this book always going to be written for your brother or was it you wanted you had this idea of a, a mixtape and you could have very well just said this is like my my mixtape and just written it kind of like in these linked essays uh, how these songs infected you but you frame that as a way to you know to to bestow some lessons for your brother i i wonder how maybe that evolved for you i sort of began the project thinking about how punk rock and straight edge culture had shaped my orientation to the world. You know, I, it's not, I knew it was something that was not just like a way to pass a time as a hobby. It was something that I knew had really influenced the kind of philosophical template I used to make decisions. And I was looking for the right vector by which to address all of that. And at some point while kicking around some, some writing that did make its way into the manuscript. My brother sent me the email that is uh, that you find in the in the very first chapter of Boys in the Void, and I realized um, that he was beginning to wrangle with many of the same questions that dogged me when I was in my early teens, and that punk and straight edge had had helped me to answer or at least uh, you know countenance right and. So I thought, hmm, what if I made this email that my brother's sending me the point of departure for the conversation that uh, you know I wanted to have with a reader or with myself about punk and straight edge culture um, and my particular relationship to it? And I kind of wrote a first essay in response to the email. And uh, once that happened, I realized that a mixtape would be a really cool superstructure for the whole thing. And the rest kind of came together from there. I think it'd be important too um, to kind of unpack uh, two things re regarding the manuscript, and you've said it twice already. You know your relationship to punk and punk rock, and how how that, for lack of a better term, uh, like infected you, and also the the straight edge component. But uh, why don't you run with uh, punk rock first, and like that importance and how that resonated with you, and just you know sort of interlocked itself with your own DNA. Punk music is something that spoke to me in an almost sub-intellectual way 
from a very early age. It was definitely, I definitely had the moment of like, this just sounds cool and I'm not sure why. And, Mm -hmm. and it's for me, I can tell that it's for me uh, in a way that I'm not yet able to articulate. But it's also the case that um, the substance of a lot of punk music happened to harmonize, I would say, with like the, the very particular and eccentric uh, home environment I grew up in. And, you know, one way to explain it, um, you know, the first punk band I heard, like a lot of people, was uh, Green Day in the early 90s. And I was super into it, but not really aware of them as being connected to the punk tradition. I actually really thought of them as an alt-rock band. And then later on, the real sort of gateway punk band for me was Operation Ivy, who, of course, hail from, not maybe not coincidentally, the same scene that birthed Green Day. The lead singer of Operation Ivy is his name, Jesse Michaels. Uh, he was the primary lyricist, and his lyrics are really what first m- moved me and made me think, man, this, you know, this punk tradition speaks to something that I also perceive in the world and sort of feel in an innate way, but uh, wasn't really sure how many other people were on the same wavelength. And I think one of the reasons that Operation Ivy uh, intuitively appealed to me, I would only find out much later. Jesse Michaels is the son of Leonard Michaels, who's a pretty um, well-known writer. He, d- he does essays. He does fiction. He was um, an English professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And obviously, I, I you know, my father's a writer as well. At the, at the time I became engaged with Operation Ivy, he wasn't yet an English professor, but he is now. I, I actually think that one of the things I identified with in Operation Ivy lyrics is was uh, like the hallmarks of having this really literary anti-establishment upbringing. And so Michaels, the younger Michaels, I think, could speak to me on a wavelength I understood because we had similar, possibly had similar upbringings or at least had similar, you know, dads. And it just kind of, once I got really passionate about Op Ivy, that led me to discover lots of other related bands um, and really inform my my politics and, and how I navigated growing up. Do you have a particular song from them that is just your, it's like your anthem? You know, not a particular one. They have so many, but I think a thing I think about a lot is a song called junkies running dry and i can the i want to say it's the second or third verse of the song runs through my head i would say once a week um it's some you know it's something like i always looked up to the ones who walked away choosing themselves over preset ways and then it goes on to say uh this wonderful generosity a third of a life to do what we please doesn't look that great to me in fact it doesn't really look fair they call it youthful idealism and even i would have to agree with them except some of us grow up and it's still there and i i think about those lines because you know i first heard them when i was a kid like in middle school and i understood that it was talking about um, a kind of adult submission to conformity that was probably on the conveyor belt for me, right? That it was like yeah. down the line, I'd be that person confronting um, that pressure to conform. And, uh, you know, when I listen to the song now, it makes me smile that it's been so many years and I've managed to, I hope, knock on wood, uh, maintain that youthful idealism that this, this speaker in this song is saying most folks uh, have to give up. 
I love, I love, I love that, and I also love how you describe, you know, your families are, are not, your family is not unlike a 21st century edition of J.D. Salinger's Glass Family. <laughs> I, I love Thanks. that line. It cracked me up. <laughs> the glasses, man, you gotta love them. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, you're right. You're we're a close knit but contentious family of bookish eccentrics struggling to reconcile your bohemian sensibilities with the prevailing norms of our era. It was just I love I love that. That was so so evocative. Yeah, well, I, I'll be interested to see if my uh, if my family or my siblings find that to be a flattering comparison, but it's definitely an accurate one. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. So it, oh, an- another component of the 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 punk rock scene that you folded into is also this, this notion of the, the straight edge component of it as well. And so maybe, maybe you can describe what that is and kind of unpack it and why it was, uh, why it's so important to you. Straight edge, uh, you know, a lot of my sort of punk rock exposure began in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is uh, a suburb of Washington, DC. Washington, DC has this robust tradition of hardcore music and punk music more broadly, but some people would call DC the birthplace of hardcore. Um, and one of the most significant bands in the early days of hardcore was Minor Threat. They had a song called Straight Edge, which, depending on who you ask, I suppose, um, sort of accidentally led to this movement, um, this r- sort of refutation of the excesses of 70s rock culture. And the the planks of the straight edge platform are, of course, no drinking, no drugs, uh, no promiscuous sex. And it, it comes up in that song, um, obviously, my titular anthem, straight edge. But people kind of took it and ran with it. And the movement became a lot bigger than what that particular band was saying about it. Um, and so obviously, when I come along uh, to Silver Spring, Maryland in the early 2000s, there's still a lot of DC hardcore aficionados and, and lots of adherence to the straight edge lifestyle. Uh, and so I was kind of heard about it straight edge as a thing uh, at parties and at shows and stuff. But I really gravitated toward it after reading this book called The Philosophy of Punk, which uh, I mentioned in the manuscript. And, you know, some at some point in uh, either like late eighth grade, early ninth grade, I, re- I decided to take the plunge, so to speak, that I was going to commit to straight edge. Largely because I thought I was sort of persuaded by this idea that if you were invested in the world, if you had a humanitarian view of the world and you wanted to see society improve, you needed to maintain a lucid engagement with reality. And you needed to also invest in your own longevity, your own physical and spiritual longevity. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, ninth grade me was like really into that. So I jumped on the straight edge train and, um, I, you know, I've developed some ambivalence with it over the years. It's something that I've, I've had moments where, you know, I didn't want to be edge anymore. Uh, most notably in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was killed and the whole respectability politics angle of that controversy uh, was at a fever pitch. That that was a time I really questioned straight edge. But otherwise, um, it's been it's been kind of a um a lifeline for a long time yeah i i i came away thinking that that straight edge for you was in a way kind of a mode of of self-defense as well in in kind of subverting assumptions or 
or, or snap judgments people might make of you on on the street if you were being like profiled or like you know or pulled over no one could say you were drunk or or high or anything like it was a way that you said that you have a lucid connection to the world and it was also something that no one could hang uh inebriation on you as an, an as an excuse to you know to prosecute you if that makes any sense yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean the self defense i've actually never thought to put it in those terms but i think it's a very useful phrase um I did kind of feel, you know, I was raised with like a very robust awareness of, you know, the the perils of being who I am in an anti-black society. And it was never like, well, as a function of, you know, how dangerous and complicated it is to be a black person in the U.S., you need to never drink or never smoke or, you know, never have promiscuous sex. That was never, that was not the explicit conversation, but you know, the kind of politics I was raised with made it really obvious to me that um, staying free and staying alive long enough to sort of actualize my dreams was going to be difficult. It was going to take a lot of my energy and a lot of my concentration that there was not going to be, a, it wasn't going to be an escalator to any of that. And so Straight Edge felt like, okay, if I commit to this as like a, as an ethic I'm going to live with, um, I'll be able to ration my energy better. I'll be able mm. to like preserve uh, the personal qualities that I need to sort of um, navigate what seemed to be was self evidently, I should say, a really treacherous landscape. Right. Oh, and, and rationing energy is a great way of phrasing it as well, because in essence, certain units of decision are already made for you and you don't have to contend and wrestle with maybe the peer pressure or even if you're just trying to abstain for whatever kind of reason of personal development you know you're not fighting or walking uphill against a certain ethic like this is just who i am what i stand for and yeah when it comes time to you know go out and party i don't have to wrestle with should i drink tonight or should i not drink should i smoke or should i not smoke it's just a decision made for you and then you can better as you say ration your energy towards more productive means yeah that's a i mean it's a perfect way of putting it and it it really is a it, it sounds kind of high-minded, but for me, it's really played out in an extremely practical way. Uh, even when I talk to people about my writing practice, and they say, "Oh, you know, how do you how do you find time um, to write, to work on stuff, to be in a you know, to write songs and be in a band like you also do?" I really people think I'm joking and being self-deprecating, but I kind of feel like it's easier for me to do that because I'm a bit single-minded, and I'm I'm pretty I have a long track record of being single-minded. I'm not really distracted, I think, by a lot of things that are, I'm sure are worthwhile pursuits for plenty of people, and, and I don't I disparage that, but that I've just decided are not going to be part of my program, so I don't spend any time thinking about them or being tempted by them. Where do you think that, that single-minded drive comes from for you and, and, putting that in, and putting that energy towards the writing? I'm not sure. Um, I do think that uh, I benefited in a lot of ways from my parents having me so young. Um, a lot of their own creative life, um, I was really sort of 
front and I had a front row seat. I really watched how my mother, for instance, pursued making theater, um, and I really watched my father's artistic practice as a as a poet, and then later as a nonfiction writer, and then a fiction writer, and then later a journalist, and eventually an academic. And you know, it kind of connects with the with what punk culture thinks of as the DIY ethic, right? The do it yourself mm. culture. My parents were both very much people who were, you know, neither of them finished college. They weren't what you would think of as like, they weren't formally, that, they, there wasn't that much formal education between them in terms of higher education. But they, there was like a very observable autodidactic quality to how they lived their lives and they, how they approach creativity. It was very much, hey, I might not know exactly how to build a set, for instance, but I can read a book about it and then go for what I know and then sort of use trial and error to improve upon the process. And so since that was kind of like my day one, so to speak, I mean, I would come home from school and we wouldn't, or I would get out of school, I should say, and we would go straight to rehearsal and I would watch my mom, you know, run her own theater company for six or seven hours. And then we'd go home, have dinner and I'd go to bed. That would be my entire day uh, after mm. school. And I think watching that and seeing both that uh, a, a couple really key takeaways one that you can kind of do whatever you want like you don't need to have a a ticket to something you can make your own way into things that other people might see as really es esoteric or that other people might see as requiring getting past some kind of gatekeeper and then the second key thing is that if you wanted to make your own way it took it takes a lot of concentration um it takes a lot of tenacity and the more energy and focus you have available to make your own way, the better. And I think both of those things really uh, inform my gravitation to straight edge and obviously, you know, inform my creative practice as well. I, I love hearing you say that because a lot of people will say like, I won't, I, you know, I need a, a an MFA. I need another degree to prove that I have some sort of outward validation that yes, I am a writer or, you know, fill that fill in the blank for making film or 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 music or whatever but right. that DIY ethic that you learn from your parents and that you've been able to put into practice for yourself like you you just have to have the courage to do enough bad work and have enough assurance that if you do enough bad work the good stuff has no choice but to come out eventually <laughs> that I mean that's gospel to me right uh, it's funny. It, I was actually thinking about this because I was rewatching The Wire recently. Are you familiar with the show? Familiar with the show, though I, ha I unfortunately have not sat down and 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 seen it yet. But I know I know what it's about. Well, there's just it's mostly an extremely bleak show, which you probably know. But there's yeah. I, I'm noticing now some of the very rare moments of hope and optimism on that show, and one that has slipped by me in previous viewings is where a guy who wants to open his own boxing ring is at another boxing ring scouting it out. Uh, and he's complaining to the guy who owns the boxing ring they're in that, about, about the difficulties of it and the difficulties of reaching young children in Baltimore in a way that they'll respect you. And the older guy who owns the boxing ring is like sympathetic, but also kind of like, you know, man, you can't let that stuff stop you. And so to, to sort of illustrate his point, he points – uh, to a corner of the gym where there's a really young boxer in training and he's slapping whatever you call those, the gloves. And so the older guy says to the younger guy who wants to open a boxing ring, 
what do you call that, right? That person over there. And the younger guy says, I call that weak. You know, that kid doesn't know what he's doing. And the older guy says, that's not weak. That's a beginning. Mm. And the point is like, if you want, if you want something, you need to accept that at some point you're going to be that dude very lightly tapping the gloves with like no precision or force. But if you commit and accept that condition, uh, you can absolutely build from there. But it just seems so canny to me because it illustrated the, the two different ways you can look at that same beginning. You can, you can look at it as weak and be discouraged, or you can say, this is A, but you got to have A if we're trying to get to Z. And accepting A is like the precondition for getting to Z. Oh, that's so that's so perfect. And what it echoes, uh, just beginning, just coincidentally, about a Baltimore native and Ira Glass and that creative gap where you know you have you're here at a at a at as a beginner. You're you have killer taste, but you're not you're nowhere good enough to make the thing that your taste wants to make. Mm-hmm. But it's just a matter of you just got to keep repeating you got to keep writing you got to keep shooting films taking pictures recording interviews and eventually you know it's just you have to have the 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 endurance and the the singular love of the thing to endure the bad stuff and eventually that gap closes between you know what you're capable of and your in your skill so it, it's just so great to hear you echo that cuz it's just it's so important to underscore that yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things I feel like I try to mention it to my students. I think once you get to college, maybe you, you've sort of already formed some ideas about uh, how worth it it is to be bad at something in the beginning. But I, I feel like it's something all kids could stand to hear explicitly more often and early. Yeah, it, especially in a day and age where – you know, we really want, you know, we're in a quick fix, fix culture anyway. That's been that way for decades, if not centuries. But social media has further fomented this idea that people just kind of, they just appear fully made where you don't realize that in all likelihood that took 10 years for that person to get to that point. Right. You know, it's it's that whole thing. And then our culture is just so seduced by precocity with 30 under 30 lists that if you feel like if you haven't been anointed and been on one of these lists that then what's the point of even trying if I have no, if I don't have what it takes to make this list, then maybe I shouldn't even be starting. So right. it's, it's so great to just hear that. And I think it's very important. I think it's, it would behoove. It's great. I think it would, maybe the students don't want to hear it right away, but I think maybe once they get into the mud of it, they'd be like, Oh yeah. I remember when, you know, professor Asim told me that he's like, it's going to take a while. And that's okay. And in fact, that's normal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you, if you come into it with that attitude, it's even kind of fun to sort of yeah. mark your progress, right? Because then if you know that that's the long game and that it's going to take a long game, then making the jump from, you know, clueless to mildly clued feels so much more gratifying. <laughs> yeah. It's like almost thinking like, in five year chunks instead of like five month chunks or something. You'd be like, you know what, this is kind of what I want to do. I have maybe over the course of a lifetime, maybe anywhere from 15 to 16, maybe if I'm lucky, 17 or 18, five year chunks. And maybe I just need to play my play my cards for five years at a time and see if something really gloms on and see if it can get a certain degree of mastery 
over those little chunklets and see if you want to parlay that momentum into another chunklet or pivot entirely. You know, your father's a great example of how he's he's going from poet to fiction, nonfiction, like you, you name so many things and he's got so many different right. disciplines all under this one umbrella of communication in words. So it's one of those things where maybe you just take those assessments at various intervals in life, you know, it can be a very fulfilling journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think punk has really reinforced the wisdom of that for me. Um, I always kind of, a thing I mention to my students a lot, or I've made a couple lessons out of is, um, Joey Ramone having a conversation with uh, Joe Strummer before the clash really got going. You know, Strummer saw the, the Ramones live uh, and was really impressed and was like, man, I would like to get to that point, but the clash are not that yet. And Ramone, when, when he heard uh, Joe Strummer say that, he was like, nah, man, like, we don't know how to play. We're lousy. If you wait till you can play, you'll be too old to get up there. Uh, yeah. And Strummer took that to heart, obviously, uh, and and the rest is history. And I, I think it's instructive in the sense of you do learn by doing. And if you have the confidence to dive in, not lean in, but dive in, you can – the very experience of having dove in is go going to be so edifying that you can kind of put the rest together from there. And it's really – it's kind of that fear of – of beginning that fear of, of not, you know, quite having the credentials to do the thing um, that kind of takes so many people out of the game before they even start. And that Ramon's attitude um, is something I, I try to bring to everything. And um, that I think uh, will pay dividends for just about anyone. And I, you've referred to, you know, just uh, to a to a writing practice of some kind and everybody has to adopt it in some form or another. Either you can be a binge writer on the weekend or you can be someone who gets up very early in the morning and you know writes for an hour and then those little drip by drip things add up. So uh so what what do you identify as your writing practice? Hmm. Well, I it took me a while to learn this, but I'm very much a person who's kind of always writing uh even without typing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the practice, the, a, a key development uh, in my practice, I think, was learning to realize that just listening closely, reading closely, allowing my mind to make connections in at points that we might otherwise describe as idle time is usually step one to pumping out an essay. And so I don't, a lot of people will say, oh, well, I want to do 350 words a day, or I want to, you know, do a thousand words a day, whatever it is. I tend not to put that kind of uh, pressure on myself because I find that once I sit down to hammer out 2000 words or whatever it is, uh, I've already kind of generated a really a high percentage of those words in other places. It might be, you know, text to uh, some of my friends. It might be, you know, conversations I have with my parents, but the sentences uh, have already come out of my mouth somewhere and sitting down is usually just the point where I begin to um, fully realize which sentences go where. So uh, I, the backbone of my practice uh, is really just trying to, to maintain a really um, vigorous attunement to the things around me and allow that attunement to produce 
uh, observations and and let them accumulate. And you know, when once it feels like a lot of accumulated, I I gotta sort of unload them. Hmm. And how do you go about you know keeping track of them, keeping track of ideas, uh, so that when you're ready to sit down in your workspace, you know it can spill out. In, you know, onto, onto the page. Well, it's funny you say that I'm trying to get better at that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm blessed to be able to have a pretty good memory. Uh, but I, what I'm noticing as I, as I get older is that I probably relied on that too much. So I'm trying to, you know, build the habit of like making a, uh, of organizing different kind of subheadings. Like, you know, I have a file of ideas for, uh, what I think my next book will be. And then I have another file of ideas that uh, all seem to fall under the same heading, but I have no idea what kind of project it is yet. It could actually be fiction. Um, it might be a play. But uh, it's still, it, I'm describing it as organized. It's the sort of thing that another person would look at it and be like, wow, that is actually a mess. You just have a you just have a, a name in, in bold face at the top, but otherwise it's a mess. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I'm like a, a voracious note taker and a, a curator of notebooks. Like I always have one on me and I consider it kind of like a butterfly net because if I come up with an idea just out on a walk or wherever, I, I need to capture I It's like a dream because you think you're going to remember, at least for me, I think I'm going to remember it and invariably I don't. I'm like, God damn it. That was actually a really good turn of phrase and it's gone now. <laughs> it's a, but if I had a notebook on me, I could have captured it and stowed it away somewhere, but at least it would have been captured and then I can, you know, play with it later. But if I, I can't do it unless I capture it, you know? Yeah. It takes discipline to like, make sure you capture it. I think it's Paul Simon. You know, I, I read a lot of um, interviews with songwriters. I'm always interested in how songwriters think about what they do because it's such a, um, it's such a vocation that is both like rigidly formulaic and sort of mysterious and magical. It might be someone else. I think it's Paul Simon who says, you know, if he, if a melody comes to him and he's at the grocery store, he could be getting his teeth cleaned, whatever. He's going to stop what he's doing and get to the tape recorder. He is going to hum that melody into a recorder hook, nook or crook. Uh, and that, he only arrived at that level of discipline because he had so many moments like the one you just described where he had a really cool idea and slipped away and it never came back. And so I always, I always think about that, right. To sort of use that frustration of having lost what we, what we think is the thing, like the best idea to um, sort of cultivate that, that discipline that will allow it to not happen again. Yeah. I love hearing you say that you draw a kind of a creative inspiration for, you know, probably your essays, or your prose from music, but you also, you know, write music and play. So there's, there's that element too, where you, you know, you're, you can draw that inspiration from that pool. It's, it's always cool hearing where, you know, other, you know, artists draw their inspiration from. And if you're primarily a writer, you know, what movies or, or music or anything helps inform the thing you want to do. You're like, Oh, that's a really cool thing they did. I want to try to do that over here. Uh, I like drawing inspiration from the way chefs think about food. I, I think there's so mm. much writing involved in the making of a recipe. And so I, I, 
that's one of those things where I draw inspiration from. So it's really cool to hear you unpack, say, the way a songwriter is approaching sort of the, the strict boundaries of the form, but then getting wildly creative within those lines. Yeah, that's I the the inspiration you take from uh, the culinary world seems super aligned with that. Where it's it's always fun to kind of uh, transpose another artist's rubric or paradigm or whatever it is into the medium that you're working with. Because uh, if you start thinking about your medium in in a vacuum, I think that's like sort of when you fall off and you begin to uh, rely on sort of only the most familiar gestures or choices. Um, being able to look outside your medium, but then also extract whatever that is and apply it to what you're doing, I think is like a great way to keep it fresh. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, there was this one line in the book where you where you wrote that, um, you know, you write, during grad school, I took a class on narrative long-form journalism. In it, the professor touted the importance of anesthetizing your personality. And uh, I wonder when you when you came across that and, you know, you really, you know, make a point of you know speaking to that in the book. Like, what did you make of that when you heard that? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. Um, it's a it's a really loaded notion, actually. So um, I do think it's great advice to aestheticize your personality. Like I'm not the. It, it's one of those things that in a in a vacuum finding a way to sublimate your own way of being in the world into a text or into whatever form of art you work with. Of course. Yeah. That's, that's the way to go. Like I'm with it. Uh, what I found even in the context of, of grad school, specifically MFA workshops, what I found is that some personalities uh, are not as legible to readers based on those readers limited sense of the social imaginary. And when I, when I use the phrase the social imaginary, I'm kind of, I kind of just mean what we think other people can be like, or like what kinds of people we think exist. And what I had found uh, up to that point in grad school was that when I would sublimate my own personality into a text, the people in my cohort and, you know, some of my professors had a really difficult time imagining um, that the person on the page could accord with what I look like, like they, they could see my face and they'd read the text and they couldn't connect it to, they couldn't imagine that I'm that person. Um, and so I don't think that's a, I don't mention that to say, um, that it's a flawed heuristic or a flawed kind of uh, truism that you should aestheticize your personality in your work. Um, it, what it really made clear to me was that in my work, I would need to both address what it's like to be a person that other people mostly can't imagine within any text in which I sublimated my personality that I had to do two. It was a two pronged project. I had to both, you know, bring my way of being in the world onto the page. And then while I was there, I had to address the, the elephant in the room that a lot of people who read who are otherwise very um, aware and intelligent and imaginative have some pretty limited ideas about what black people are like. And a lot of what I have to say does not accord with those limited ideas. Uh, and so in a way I'm, I'm doing that in boys in the void. I'm mentioning that experience as a key to the reader, as a clue to the reader. 
hey, if you're having some difficulty picturing somebody like me, well, it's understandable. Um, <laughs> but let's work on it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have so many, like, just incredible sentences in, in this book, too. I just rem- remember just, yeah, they, like, you just have such a great, just, um, I don't know, just, it's like coming across great song lyrics and you're just like nodding along and like that one comes along and it hits with the right chord and the right downbeat. And you're like, Oh man, like that, it just hits you across the jaw in such a, such a, in the best possible way. And, uh, there, the book is just totally littered with that great stuff. And, uh, you know, and I just, in my own little notes here, I just have, uh, the, something that made me crack up was, uh, studying C- uh, creative nonfiction in a master's program seems like at times like a contest to devise the most dynamic prose selfie. And I just cracked up when I heard that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That line is, makes me crack up too. So we probably have a similar sense of, um, the preoccupations of MFA students, but, uh, yeah, you know, it, you, if you want to make a dynamic prose selfie, you have to be recognizable. Um, and that's harder for some people than others. And, and given that, you know, and you talked about your, your parents and that DIY ethic of, of just how, how they went about the work. And of course, you know, punk rock is very grounded in that. And uh, so you in that autodidactic stuff you were talking about earlier about just learning by doing. And, and yet, you know, you, you go to grad school for creative nonfiction and, and, and everything. And that's not as DIY as say, as your, as your folks did it. So I wonder if maybe when you were in that program, did, or applying to it, did you kind of wrestle with this idea of going to going to grad school when a part of you knows that, well, maybe if I just grind it out on the on the ground ground here, I could maybe get there eventually without, you know, going through the degree program. It totally makes sense. You know, ironically, I wasn't I wasn't that preoccupied by that by the time I went to grad school. But as I mentioned in the book, I really took my time going to undergrad and part of the reason I did take my time is because of what you're talking about you know when I was a senior in high school uh, I really had the attitude of like well you know I I have direction I have a set of interests I just I'm not so sure I need to be at school to work on them Um, and so what I did I I devoted the lion's share of my energy to being in a a band that I write about in the book Um, and then I also wrote a bad novel at the time, but mm-hmm. I was really, I had this, I was really committed to this idea that I was going to be a free ranging intellectual, that I was going to be an artist who managed his own practice um, while working like a, a nine to five or, you know, whatever kind of blue collar work I could get my hands on. Um, and that would be as enriching as kind of like going to some tiny college town and, you know, knocking back PBRs or whatever it was. Um right. But I did that. I did this kind of like self-styled thing from 18 to 24. Uh, and I got bored of it. <laughs> and that kind of yeah. persuaded me. Let me try something else just to see what happens. Uh, and to my surprise, and to, and maybe to some degree, my embarrassment, uh, I found out that 24-year-old me liked school a whole lot more than 16-year-old me did. and And that sort of I had so much fun in undergrad, uh, intellectually speaking, that I just didn't want to go back to the real world. And I I just figured I would love MFA world, and I really did. (laughs) 
Great talk. Great book, man. I wish I was smart like that guy. But no, we're just mopping the bathroom floors of the literary scene here. Don't mind me. I'm just the, the sad, fat janitor from So I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Don't mind me, man. Don't mind me. Just squeezing out that water from the mop bucket. Uh, scrubbing the urinals and scrubbing the toilets. and It's gross. Don't I, don't, don't I know it. I was janitor for many years. And, uh, and I'm the figurative janitor of the literary scene. Just sloshing around. Listening to podcasts. Making sure this place looks spick and span. He's not... He is at not jaded punk on Instagram. I'm at CNFPod on IG, gramming out quotes and audiograms. Oh well, it's time for ye old parting shot. I wasn't sure what direction to take it this week. Last week was kind of a bummer, and this one is kind of a bummer too. Yay! I've got two quick things to talk about. Actually, it's only going to be one because the one is running long. Uh, so I, I called my dad. Uh, talked to him for about an hour today. He's usually pretty quick to get off the phone. It's kind of his jam, but he kept on. We hadn't talked in a while, and I think he was kind of lonely. His wife already flew up to Cape Cod to get her cottages ready for the season, and Dad's still down in Florida. It had been a while, and it popped into my head I should call Dad. And instead of dragging my feet, I called the guy. He's at an age where, you know, he could drop dead at any minute. And if you if you think about it, if it really pops in your head that, oh, I should call that aging person I haven't talked to in a long time, he could be gone tomorrow at a drop. And if you don't call them and you just put it on your to-do list and you wait a few days and they do, in fact, kick the bucket, you'll kick yourself for not calling. So why didn't I... You know, you'll be like, why didn't I call when I was thinking about it? I put it off now, and now what? It also got me thinking about how I almost have to play a role with each of my parents, and even my sister to an extent. They have a certain image of who I am, and I sort of just like context shift between whoever I'm talking to. So for my mom, I kind of have to be a loser. She sees me as a sorry little loser, her talented loser or whatever who can't get a break. And if I tell her I have some success, she's liable to kind of cut me off and uh, cut me cut me out of her loop. She's got a loser mentality that stems from years of being told she was garbage. Like literally, her mother would tell her, I should throw you back in the garbage where I found you. Yeah. So the minute people turn into a success or become somewhat successful around my mom, she kind of recedes from them or cuts them off because you're no longer the lovable loser anymore that she can relate to. And listen, I'm far from making it, but I'm not a 100% loser. I'm more like an 83% loser, but not 100. But that 83% is probably enough for her to say, I don't even know him anymore. With dad, I can't really celebrate Anything I do or write or produce. He called my first book tedious. I remember being really excited to send it to him. Uh, it was an early draft. It was coming out that year. So it's 10 years ago, which is really sad. Uh, that I, That is the only book that I've published. But that's maybe that's the next week's bummer in the parting shot that we'll talk about. Uh, he uh, On Christmas Day, he was just like, I found it kind of tedious. I, I remember like... 
he he said, you know, when is he going to make his point? I'm like, Merry Christmas, Dad. When I invited him to an award ceremony where I won uh, an award for a feature I wrote, he was like, they give everyone an award. And so it was at that moment that I was like, I'm just not going to share any of this with him anymore. I don't need to invite that kind of energy to my work. I'm my own worst enemy. I'm my own worst bummer. And so if he asks me if I'm writing, I just say, eh, a little here and there. Don't really have the time or the energy, which is kind of true. And he just goes, oh, he probably wishes I'd send him something, and maybe I should. But now, hold on. Actually, I did a couple years ago. I wrote a, a feature I really liked about the great potato toss. It was like the 30th anniversary of this potato prank, minor league baseball team, uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, whatever. I was I thought it was really funny, and it was a good feature. And uh, I sent that to him because I thought he might actually like it. And then he he said something offhand about the potato prank, remembering reading it about reading about it in Sports Illustrated. And then he didn't even acknowledge my piece. So I was like, okay, yeah, not sending anything that way. So I have to pretend I'm just this anonymous loser, kind of perpetual disappointment. Uh, Got to stay in context. Same with my sister. Got to keep the anchor around my ankle around these people. Stay in context. Be the the little the little thing that's just sinking and barely keeping his nose above the water. Otherwise, the world might just spin off its axis and we'd all die. I had something mildly inspiring to share, but I'm freaking exhausted now since I went down that traumatic road. So I'm just gonna leave you, all right? I'm sorry that it's as big a bummer, but if you know, you could always rewind and listen to G Rock because he was pretty fucking cool. In any case, stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. See ya.